have your Bibles, let's let God keep speaking to us through His Word. 1 Samuel chapter 10. 1 Samuel chapter 10. This morning we're actually going to be covering chapters 8, 9, and 10, but we're just going to read from chapter 10 and then I'll make the connections as we go. Beginning in verse 17, we'll read through verse 27. God's Word says, Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mishpah. And he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you have said to him, set a king over us. Now therefore present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, Is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Then they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king! Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship, and he wrote them in a book and laid it before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his home. So Saul also went to his home at Gibeah, and with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, How can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present, but he held his peace. Let's pray to the Lord together this morning. Heavenly Father, our desire is that you would speak to us. Our desire is that you would peel back the floor of heaven and reveal more of your glory to us, that we would love you more, that our affections would be stirred more, that our passion would be increased, that our our obedience would be more joyful. I pray, Lord, that where there is sin, that you would show that to us so that we can repent and turn away from that which seeks to destroy us and turn toward you who is our source of light and life. Father, I pray for my people that they would not settle for what they can have in the here and now. That they would not settle for a small glimpse of you. That they would not settle for a simple natural life, but that, Lord, they would be set apart by you to be a unique people for your glory, living supernatural lives. Lord, we come now and we surrender ourselves to you and knowing that you're going to answer these prayers to your own glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. So one of the things that my girls and I especially enjoyed to do is we like to go on walks in our neighborhood. And now we live in a really hilly neighborhood, some pretty steep hills, but there's a, there's a little loop that we do pretty often in the afternoons together. And, uh, you know, it's a whole thing. Everybody's singing and skipping and having a good time, right? And it's mostly uphill the whole way going and downhill the whole way coming, right? And one of the things that I started realizing, so 
you know how you kind of know who all of your kids are and they're all a little bit different? Sarah is my clumsiest kid, all right? She gets it from her mama, right? <laughs> that wasn't funny. But, but Sarah, is my, Sarah is my clumsiest kid, but she has this thing that she likes to do when she's running, when she's coming back down the hill, she likes to run down the hill. And it's a steep hill. And of course, she also loves to wear Crocs and flip-flops. All right, y'all, y'all have the picture here? And so I, I would go on these walks and we're going up the hill. And, you know, Sarah's the slowest kid also. So you're kind of dragging Sarah up the hill. She's going slow as Christmas Day up the hill. But then coming back, she wants to see if she can set like a land speed record. And so like she's just sprinting in flip-flops. And you can just see in your, uh, in your mind exactly what's about to happen, right? Like there's going to be wailing and gnashing of teeth. You, you just know it, that that flip-flop is going to catch the ground just right. And she's going to go end over end. And so every single day we go on this walk, we would go through the same routine, right? That she would, I would drag her up the hill. She would try to run down the hill. And I would say, Sarah, 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 stop, 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 stop. You are going to wipe out. Like, it's going to be bad. There's going to be lots of blood, lots of pain. Like, it's not going to be good, right? And so every time I'm, I'm throttling her back as we go on these walks. Well, we go on it one day and I just decided I'm not slowing her down today. Like, she, she does not listen. She will not learn. This is just going to be one of those experiences. She's just going to have to figure this out on her own, right? And, of course, she made it, right? Like, she, she runs, and she made it all the way to the bottom, and she made it the next day and the next day. But there came a day. There came a day when the old croc came out of four-wheel drive and slipped off the foot. Y'all know what I'm talking about? And there's a wipeout. And of course, you know what the scene, there's wailing, there's gnashing of teeth. She doesn't understand why she's fallen. She, she, she can't believe that this has happened to such a person as, as she. And I go and I pick her up and I dust her off. And that's really a picture of parenting, isn't it? That, that parenting is like 50% allowing your children to fail in a closed environment, in a, in a controlled environment, Right? Like, like so much of it is allowing them to crash in such a way that they can learn, but it doesn't like kill them and cause them long-term bodily harm. So, some of y'all are straight up judging me as a dad already, and I know that. I, I, I told this story kind of aware of that that was going to happen. But, but, but there's no teacher in our lives quite like pain. That we can be instructed and we can be taught and we can be told and we can be encouraged and we can be exhorted and we can be warned and we can have all of these things bouncing around in our heads. But until it hurts, until it hurts, we have trouble believing it. Until it hurts, we have trouble really trusting that it's as bad or as dangerous or as lethal as everybody wants to make it out to be. Until we wipe out. What we see in the book of 1 Samuel is we're coming to this moment in Israel's history where over and over they have tried to assert their independence from God. That that God has given them instructions on how they can be prosperous, on how they can thrive as a nation, on how they can have his blessing as a nation. God, God has instructed them and told them that if they walk in the ways that seem best to them and they assert their independence from him, that there's going to be calamity that's going to come up upon, uh, come upon them. And so they're making this choice between that which will prosper them and that which will destroy them. And what is Israel always doing? They're always saying, no, 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 I can make it to the bottom of the hill. 
No, no, no. I, I, I've got this. I can figure this out, Lord. Lord, let us do what is right in our own eyes. You remember, you remember that refrain from the book of Judges. And so there comes a point with Israel, and that's where we are in 1 Samuel 8, 9, and 10, in which God becomes content to allow them to run down the hill. God becomes content to allow them to come barreling down the hill, even though he's warned them, even though he's encouraged them, even though he's exhorted them, even though he's instructed them, to let them run down the, field, the hill in flip-flops so that they can eventually yard sell and learn the hard way. And I think what we get here is not just a glimpse of who Israel is, but a glimpse of who I am and of who you are of how we so often relate to the Lord in a way in which we are constantly asserting our independence so that the Lord has to bring kind, loving discipline into our lives so that we can learn that there is a better way, so that we can learn that He is a good God, so that we can learn of our real desperate need for Him. And so what I want us to see is I want us to see that picture of ourselves that we glimpse here from Israel. The first thing that I want you to see is that we think we know best. We think that we know best. You'll see there in verse 19 that there's, a, there's a, a declaration. It comes up first in chapter 8, but there in verse 10, we're kind of seeing it repeated. It says, but today you have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you have said to him, set a king over us. Set a king over us. Now, there's a particular reason that Israel wants a king at this time. They are having a very tumultuous experience there as a nation. First of all, the Philistines are closing in on them from every, from every corner. And the Philistines appear to be especially capable warriors, men that are, that are able to bring harm and damage to Israel. And they're, they're being threatened that their existence could be wiped from the earth. And so there's this anxiety. You, you can even think, you know, we're going back to this September 11th experience. And so many of us have, have replayed that moment. And, and you remember the fear and the, and the chaos and the lack of understanding of all that was happening on that day in which, which you felt like your enemies were finally coming to us here on our homeland, right? And so you can imagine the anxiety that's there in Israel as the Philistines, these capable warriors are pressing in on them. Not only are the Philistines pressing in on them, but they're very disjointed as a nation. There's, not, there's no unity as a nation. And so you have all the tribes that are scattered throughout the promised land and all their little pockets. And every, nobody's really bringing everybody together so that they can have a formidable force to go and to fight the Philistines. And then you compound that with the fact that it just seems like there's no capable leader coming down the pipeline that's going to be able to restore and bring any hope at all. What John read last time reminds us that Eli, the, the previous leader of Israel, he had a bad family. You have to understand the way, the way they understood leaders to come about was through a plan of succession through birth. Well, Eli's sons are rotten, and God raises up Samuel. So now there's, a, there's new hope. Well, what we learn in chapter 8 is that Samuel's sons are rotten. And so it seems like there's no real hope that a leader is going to come to the forefront that can bring Israel together and then be able to thwart their enemies. And so Israel goes before Samuel, and by going before Samuel, their prophet, they're really going before God himself, and they say, set us a king up. Give us a king. We need a king. We need somebody that can bring everybody together and, and unify the forces and unify the nations. We need a political leader that can, that can come in and deliver us from all this that's coming against us. 
And as it as it's there, what we need to see is that what's especially egregious is the reason that they give for asking for a king. Look there at the bottom of verse 5. It says in verse 5, And said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons, this is him talking to Samuel, do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king, that's where he asked for in verse 8, and to judge us like all the nations. Like all the nations. So what reason do they really give to Samuel for wanting a king? They want to be like everybody else. They want to be normal. They want to be typical. They they want what a a nation is expected to have. They they want a king because all the nations have a king. They want one that they can see because all of them have one that they can see. They want to be like every other nation. Now, what is so egregious about that? That That seems reasonable. That seems rational. They have problems. They have the Philistines closing in. They have all, of course they want a warrior. Of course they want a king. What's egregious about that is the very nature of Israel is Israel was chosen that they would be unique, that they would be different than all the other nations. They were chosen not because they were a great nation, but because they were a small nation. They were chosen not because they were capable, but because they were helpless. And they were not given a king because they didn't need one. God said, I will be your king. I will go before you. I will deliver you from your enemies. I will provide for you the food that you need to make it. I will prosper your ways. I will make sure that your your crops come in. I will make sure that your foes cannot triumph over you. I will be your king and you will be my people and we will go against the walls of Jericho and crush them. I will send my angels and you won't even be able to see them, but they will slay hundreds of thousands in your presence. I will make sure that you eat if I have to rain it out of the heavens. I'm going to be your king. And you know what Israel's response is? Nah, we'd just rather be normal. Nah, j- j- just give us a guy with a crown on his head. Uh, yeah, that'd be awesome. You-, you see, what was supposed to be incredible about Israel is that they were going to be set apart by the fact that they had a God and a king that you could not see. And having a God and a king that they could not see, all of the other nations would think that they had an easy way with them. And then nations would come and they would come against Israel only to be defeated by this invisible warrior God. And then those nations would have to fall on their faces and acknowledge that there is no God like the God of Israel. So through this uniqueness, Israel was intended to bring glory to God. And here is Israel saying, no, 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 no. That's not what we're all about here. Give us somebody we can see. We want to walk by sight and not by faith. We want something that we can see, not just something that we believe. In fact, this has always been the case. And you can see it alluded to there in verse verse 19. It says, but today you have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and all your distresses. In in, In chapter 8, it says it more explicitly. But what's it referencing there? It's referencing the Exodus, right? It's referencing these times in which God has come and he has delivered them from the most powerful military on earth. And he brings them into the wilderness, having parted the Red Sea and crushed Pharaoh and his armies. And what's the very first scene that happens in the Red Sea, uh, in in the wilderness of Sinai? They go and they melt all their gold together and they say, give us a God we can see. Give us a king we can see. Give us a king like everybody else has. Yes, God, we know what you just did, but we still can't see you. We still don't know that you're there. We, we, we want to believe in you, but we can't see. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to create an image of something that gives us hope, an image of something that we can rally around. 
In other words, we're going to make ourselves more typical, right? You see what we have happening here in in, uh, 1 Samuel 8, 9, and 10 is we have Israel asking for a more successful version of what everybody else has. What they want is a better version of what all the other nations experience. They want a king who can go and and lead them politically. They want a military commander that can bring them all together and unify them all together. Except they want an invincible king and they want an invincible warrior because after all they have the Lord. And so their concept of what it means to have the Lord as their God is that that Lord can prosper a normal life in a way that all the other nations can't experience. But here wanting a more more perfect version of what everybody else has, they're actually settling. They're settling that what God is offering them is supernatural and they're settling for what is natural. That that what God is offering them is an experience that transcends what is typical and transcends what all the other nations know, even on their greatest day, even on their most triumphant victory. And yet they're saying, just give us what everybody else has. They're settling. And brothers and sisters, there is a picture of us in there. There is a picture of us in there that I'm afraid what is permeating American Christianity is a desire that if I bring God into my life, that what I can ultimately have is just a better version of what everybody else has. That I can have the same house and the same, and the same priorities and I can approach my job the same way and I can approach my finances the same way. I can approach my schedule the same way. I can approach parenting the same way. Except in my case, now I'm able to have a peace that surpasses all understanding. I'm able to answer the big mystical religious questions that everybody else wrestles with. I'm able to have an answer for the eternal life question. So in other words, I'm able to have my cake and eat it too. I'm able to have all of the things that this world offers and I'm also able to have an inward counselor that will make me feel good on the inside so I'm able to have outward prosperity and inward peace what I ultimately have is just a better version of what everybody else has and brothers and sisters what I want you to see this morning is you're settling you're settling If that's what you're living for, if you're prioritizing your time and budgeting your money and scheduling your calendar and planning your dreams and laying out your family and approaching your job just so that you can be and have a typical American experience only with God added in, you don't have a Lord. You have an additive that brings you to peak performance. Oh, and brothers and sisters, you are selling short for the miraculous in your life. You are settling short, setting short of, of, of experiencing a uniqueness in your life in which other people are able to see in you the glory and power and majesty of God becoming fully manifest in you. God is coming and he's saying, let me set you apart. Let me fill you with my spirit. Let me push and let you walk against the currents of this world. Let me let you be a spirit of gentleness in a culture of anger. Let me make you a spirit of generosity in a culture of greed. Let me make you a spirit of kindness in a, in a culture of, of vindictiveness. Let me push you against the culture. And what you're saying? Nah, nah, I'll just take what everybody else is having. Oh, brothers and sisters, what you have to understand is that this is understood as a rejection of God. What does God say? But today you have rejected your God. 
chapter, verse 7, And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the Lord in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you. They have rejected me, the Lord. They have rejected me above all the other gods. When they say, just let me be normal, let me be typical, let me have what everybody else is having. If we were to read chapter 8 together, we would come to verses 19 and 20 side by side. And what we see in verses 19 and 20 is this dual removal of God from roles that only he was actually equipped to, to man. First, in verse 19, you have the removal of God as king. That what they're essentially a, attempting to do by appointing a man-made king is to depose God from his rightful throne. To depose God from his rightful throne. Verse 20, what they talk about there is the ability to go up against all of the other armies and all of the other militaries and to command the Lord's armies. Well, as we saw in Joshua, the Lord is the commander of his armies. The Lord is the one that goes and leads them into battle. The Lord is the one that slays their enemies. And so they're not only deposing or attempting to depose him as a king. A man can't depose God. They're attempting to depose God as king. Simultaneously, they're attempting to remove him as commander. Here's what's happening. What they're saying is, God, we need a separation of church and state in Israel. You following me? That what we need, God, is we need you to allow us to tend to the everyday task of operating a nation while you go over to your little tent and handle the religious aspects of our community. That, that God, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, that's on us. Let us take control of that. Let us have a king that can rule over the political affairs. Let us have a commander that can lead us into the battle. You let us handle all of that. You, God, go to your tent and we'll come and get you when we need you. We'll come there on the Sabbath day. We'll come there when it's time to offer the sacrifices. What we need, O oh Lord, is you not to infringe upon our everyday life, but for you to handle the corner that you're actually equipped and, and capable of handling. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound familiar? Do you know what we want? We want a God that will stay in his lane. We want a God that will allow us a separation of church and state in our lives. Where the state of our family and the state of our marriage and the state of our parenting and the state of our job and the state of our finances and the state of our, our scheduling are all under our purview. And then, and then, God, we want you to go to your little church and we'll show up on Sunday when we have the opportunity. But Lord, we need you to stay in your lane and let us handle our lives. That in other words, what we don't want is a God who would infringe upon us. We don't want a God who will infringe upon our calendar. A God who will infringe upon our budget. A God who will infringe upon our ambitions and the dreams that we have for ourselves and the dreams that we have for our kids and the dreams that we have for our exotic vacations and the dreams that we have for the type of house and lifestyle that we're supposed to have and the, the dream that we have that's set out in front of us that, that's so close that we can touch. We don't want God to infringe upon that. That's because we don't want a God at all. We want a genie in a bottle that we can send over to the little church house to stay there until we're ready for him. That we want a God who can make sure that all things are gonna work together for good when we need him to. 
We want a God that can promise us eternal life forever and abundant life now, but we don't want him to cost us anything in the here and now. We don't want him to make demands upon our family and call for devotion in our family. We don't want him to make us unique. We want him to empower us to live the life that we've always dreamed of living, that we've always intended to to live. And we want him just to make sure that it all happens. And here I'm telling you, it's a rejection of God. It's a rejection of God. It's an attempt to depose him from the only throne that is rightfully his. It's an attempt to compartmentalize him to corners of his life that you think he is worthy of while you keep control of everything else. Let me ask, what's your view of God? What's your view of God? Not what you would say it is, what it practically is. What it practically is in the way that you schedule your time and budget your money and plan out your future. What is it actually in the way that you parent your kids and the, the decisions that you make about what you will do and what you won't do, where you will go and where you won't go. What, what right does God have to actually make demands upon you in your life from your perspective? What is it in your life right now that you would say, I want, but I don't have because I have offered it up to the Lord? These are spiritual thermometers in our lives, brothers and sisters. And they tell you who you trust most, yourself or the Lord. Because human nature is to say, I know what's best. I know what's best. I know what my kids need. I know what my wife needs. I know what I need. It's faith. It's faith that says, I'm not settling for what I know. I'm not settling for what I see. I'm going to lay it down before the Lord and trust him. We think we know best. Next, I want you to see that sometimes God gives us what we want. Sometimes God gives us what we want. I remember when I was in college, I worked at Winn-Dixie. And I was a meat cutter for a pretty, pretty long period of time uh, in the meat market. And we were the beef people. So that was kind of a prestigious kind of a prestigious gig. It was right there on the sign, baby. I was the beat people. You know what I'm saying? Like that, that was kind of a big deal. And while I was in college, I got to where I was working a pretty good number of hours, 35, 40 hours a week. And it started bothering me because on my paycheck every week, it still said part-time. And I remember thinking, doggone it, I'm working full-time hours. I, wanna, I want the full-time status and the full-time pay and the, and the whole nine yards, right? And I used to, I, I, would get, I had a good relationship with my supervisor, and I would get in his ear. I guess I'm good enough to work here, but I'm not good enough to be labeled full-time, huh? I guess I'm, I'm good enough to come in and do all the schedules, but I'm not good enough to, to, to actually get the pay bump that would come with full-time, huh? And I stayed on him and stayed on him and stayed on him. And one day, he walked into that refrigerated room on a cold December, and he said, guess what? I've got you full-time status. You're going to be full-time. But with full-time status comes full-time responsibilities, Cody. And so here's what you're going to do. You're going to come in every Sunday. You're going to work 6 to 3. That was a lot of fun in the wintertime in a refrigerated room at 6 o'clock in the morning, right? And, and your, your schedule is going to be set, so you're going to have to work your college classes around your work schedule now. And so I would go, at, at that point, I was going and I was leaving and using my lunch break to go and do, like, English comp, right? And I remember one day, I'm driving through the drive-thru on my way back from English comp, on my way to Winn-Dixie, and I thought, what in God's name am I doing? Like, 
let, let, me, let, me, let me frame all this up in that I was very blessed, and I realized that some of you were not in this position, but I was very blessed in that I didn't have to work full-time in college, okay? My, I lived at home with my parents. They provided the meals. They provided, my working was primarily to have a car and be able to have spending money and, and go on dates with this pretty lady right here. You know what I'm saying? Like, I didn't have to do that. And I remember driving home thinking, I know two things about my life right now. I'm going to marry that woman, and I am not going to work in the grocery business the rest of my life. You know what I'm saying? Like, I know two things about my life. I'm going to marry that woman, and I am not going to be a grocer the rest of my life. And I ended up going and quitting. But, you know, it's really a microcosm of what I've found to be true in my whole life. We think we know what we want. We think we know what we want. I wanted it so bad. I drove the man crazy about it. And then I got it, and it was like I had a hot potato that I had caught, and suddenly I wanted to drop it as fast as I could, right? How many times in your life have you prayed and pleaded and worked and scraped and crawled and scratched to get this one particular thing or to attain one particular goal only to get it and realize that it's not satisfying? Only to get it and realize it's not even good. Only to get it and realize that maybe you don't even like it. Brothers and sisters, one of the ways that God teaches us is by letting us have what we want sometimes. By answering the prayers that we've prayed and prayed and prayed, where it's clear that our heart is not getting the message. Where it's clear that we're, that we're not understanding. And so here's Israel, and they've come, and they've said, give us a king, give us a king, give us a king. Get, let us be like all the other nations. Let us not be quite so unique. Let us not stand out in such a way. And you look at what he says in verse 9 of chapter 8. God says this to Samuel, obey their voice. Now then, obey their voice. Now, I find that interesting because I almost think that it's sarcastic. Do you see the picture here? God is presenting himself as though he is subservient to Israel. Here we have God obeying his people as though they are God, not his people obeying him as God. So, so God is saying, okay, you want to have the reins, you want to be in control, you want to do your own thing, you think you know what's best, you think you know how to handle your own life and lead your own nation and take control of everything, you think you know how to do my job better than me, I'll let you go. Obey them, my prophet. Obey them, Samuel. You do what they say. You appoint them a king. And in fact, I think there's an irony that we're supposed to catch. There's a wordplay that, that's really hard for us to see in the English that we're supposed to catch when it comes to the man that he appoints. He appoints, you'll look in, in chapter 10, beginning in verse 21. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot and Saul, the son of Kish was taken by Lot. Now, if you look at Hebrew in the word that means asked, the Hebrew word that means asked is the word sha'al, sha'al, sha'al. So God is saying, oh, sha'al, you ask? Well, how about this? I'll give you sha'ul, who you've asked for. I'll give you what you've asked for. That the name of Saul literally means asked for. 
that this is what they've been chasing. This is what they've been looking for. He's what they've been asking for. He's what they've been wanting. This is what you've asked for. This is what you've desired. This is what you've been looking for. Here is Shaul. Here is the one you've wanted. Here is the one you've asked for. Here is the one that you've been looking at. And the message is clear enough. He says, you go and you, you obey them, Samuel. You give them what they want. You, you give them what they're asking for. But then you go and you solemnly warn them. You tell them that what they are wanting and what they're asking for, that which I am giving is not that which is going to bring them help. It is not that which they think that it is. In fact, look at the warning that he gives in 1 Samuel 8, 10 through verse, uh, chapter 10 through 18. We're not going to read the whole passage, but he goes there. And I want you to see what he, what he says there. He goes, and six different times, he goes and he says the word, uh, he says the word take. Do you see this? That in other words, you think that you're going to have a king and this king is going to give you happiness. You think you're going to have a king and this king is going to give you freedom. You think you're going to have a king and this king is going to, to give you prosperity and give you success and give you blessing and give you comfort and give you security. But I'm here to tell you that what you're asking for, that which I'm going to give you, I'm going to answer your request, but he's not going to give. He's going to take, 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 take. He's going to take from you. He's going to oppress you. He's going to take from you the best of your sons. He's going to take from you the best of your crops. He's going to take from you the best of your herds. He's going to take from you the best years of your life. And then when he comes to the end, he's not even going to remember your name. He's not even going to know the story of which you've been trying to tell. He's going to know nothing about you except you're going to live here and be subservient to him. Do you see the picture? Do you see the picture? that Israel, trying to chase after freedom, happiness, and security, found oppression, insecurity, and the, and the constant threat of having what they have taken from them. Not by their enemies, but by the very man that they chose to lead them. By the very one they asked for. They're worried about the Philistines coming and taking from them. And God's saying, well, you're worried about that, and you want a king? The king's the one that's going to take it from you. See, brothers and sisters, that's what happens when we take the reins. That's what happens when we try to take control. Whatever it is that you need in your life to make you feel happy and secure, that's your king. You understand that? That's what you worship. That's what you devote yourself to. The freedom that was being offered to Israel is that they had a king who didn't need anything from them. They had a king who, who would rule them benevolently, who would give to them generously, who would prosper them greatly, who would secure them completely. And instead what they said is, no, no, we need someone we can see that'll make us happy. We need someone that we can see that'll, that'll decrease our anxiety, that'll make us comfortable. Those are the two great needs, you understand, of humanity. The need for happiness and the need for security. And whatever you need beyond God... To be happy and secure, that's a king, that's a ruler, that's an idol in your life. I wonder if some of you would say that you, you need a certain number in your bank account. 
Maybe you would never say it out loud, but there's a, there's a number in your, uh, in your savings account or in your 401k. And if you were to go beneath that, if you were to go beneath that, you would be in total panic mode. You'd be in total freakout mode because there's a sense of security and happiness that you get in having that number or having a certain amount coming in every month. And you know what that means? It doesn't mean that you love money, but it does mean that you're, you need money. And needing it, it means that it's going to take, take, take from you, that you're going to give your heart and soul to make sure that you always have that number. You're going to give your heart and soul to make sure that you have exactly what you need. Maybe career success. Maybe you need an ideal career for you to feel secure and happy, to feel like you have a place in the world where you belong. Well, do you know what happens? If that becomes a need in your life for you to be secure and for you to be happy, that career is going to take, take, take from you. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe in your life you have to have a good relationship. Maybe that's with your wife. Maybe that's with your husband. Maybe that's with a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a best friend. But you have to have relationships ordered in a particular way in your life or you're unhappy and you're insecure. And if that's the case, those relationships in your life are going to take, take, take. That our ultimate end is to find our complete satisfaction and our complete contentment in our relationship with God. And if our complete satisfaction is found in our relationship with God, now I can have a job and have it, and have it in view as a way that it is not my ultimate. It is not what brings me security. It is not what brings me happiness. So I can give myself to it in freedom. I can have my kids and my kids, they are not responsible for my happiness. And by the way, if your kids are responsible for your happiness, you're bringing disruption to their soul. They can't bear that kind of weight, man. They can't bear that kind of weight. But if, if, if I, my complete satisfaction and my complete joy is found and security is found in my relationship with God, well, now I can love my kids and discipline my kids and enjoy my kids and teach my kids and raise my kids in a way. But if I don't, you know what they'll do? Take, 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 take. That whatever you need outside of God to be happy and secure is a king in your life that will only take from you. That will only take from you. And so brothers and sisters, we need to evaluate in our lives and we need to start asking the question, what is it that I need to be happy? What is it that I need to be secure? And we need to begin bringing our idols and bringing our kings and deposing all of the idols in our life so that there is one king and one king only who rightly belongs upon the throne. And it is the Lord, the warrior king, the one who will fasten us and, and secure us and propel us forwards, one that we can abide in so that our joy is full. I want you to see something else. I want you to see what Paul says in Romans chapter 1 because there's a parallel that's, that's coming here that, that's, that's, that's stated more explicitly in Roman that's described here in 1 Samuel chapter, chapter 10. Paul says in verse 26, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For the women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. What do these words imply? That God is giving them what they want. God is giving them what they want. Brothers and sisters, listen up. The Bible knows of no judgment no judgment that is harsher, no judgment that is more severe than when God is resolved to give you what you want. 
There are no more condemning words in all of the Bible than the Lord allows you to be left alone with your own desires, your own passions, and your own wants. And there are times, even in the life of his children, even in the life of Israel in the Old Testament and the church in the New Testament, in which God will allow you to barrel down the hill as fast as you want to run so that ultimately you wipe out and experience his loving discipline in your life that through pain, through pain, you might learn that what you want will ultimately destroy you, man. That what you want will not bring security, it will bring condemnation and destruction in your life and in your family and in your career and in your soul. Sometimes, sometimes the most gracious thing God can do is allow you to skin your knees and have to pick the gravel out of the blood. Sometimes God gives us what we want. Finally, what I want you to see this morning is that God sees us through anyway. There's an interesting story that happens in chapter 9 in the way that Samuel meets Saul. So Saul, basically, he's a, he's a son of a wealthy man, and he loses his daddy's donkeys, okay? He loses his daddy's donkeys. And what you need to understand is that donkeys were things that only rich people owned in Israel. So it's a, it's a sign of affluence, all right? So they were modes of transportation. So you might, I was thinking about how you might understand this. So if you're thinking about a Hyundai, this isn't the Elantra, this is the Genesis. You know what I mean? Like, like, like this isn't the, this is the Cadillac, not the Cavalier. You know what I'm saying? All right, so, so he goes out and he loses what is basically a whole herd of these things. They're very expensive. And he goes and he's trying to find and he's walking with a servant and he's about to give up, which shows a, a lack of resolve on Saul's part. And the, the servant speaks up and he says, why don't we go and talk to the prophet? Why don't we go and talk to Samuel and see if, if he might be able to handle it? And you know what Saul says? Who's that? Who's Samuel? Who are you talking about? And it's meant to be a parable. It's meant to be a parable. Saul is supposed to be the Lord's shepherd over his people. But how will he shepherd them? He'll lose them. He'll let them go their own way until they're ultimately found in their own destruction. They are, they are a valuable prize of their father. They are, they are, they are the, the, the best of the best. The, they are what he has set apart to manifest his glory for everybody else to see. And Saul is going to lose them. Why? Because he is spiritually incompetent. Because he is spiritually obtuse. Because he is so distant from the things of God that he doesn't even know who the prophet is to begin with. And the point is clear enough that what you want is going to bring great pain into your nation. What you want is going to bring great pain upon you. But like through the rubble, as those survivors looked up through 9-11, as the buildings had collapsed down on top of them, they, I read that they could, they could see beams of light that would come through that allowed them to know that, that it wasn't all over, that it wasn't all gone. And so through the rubble, here is Israel to look up and to see that the hand of the Lord is still there. The hand of the Lord is still content to work. Look at what it says. Chapter 10, verse 6, the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, that is Saul, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. That God is going to transform him through the Spirit into another man. Does that sound New Testament familiar to you? Because God is going to use Saul to actually accomplish some good for Israel's sake. Not because Israel deserves it. Not because Israel is worthy of it. Because God is good. 
and because God loves them, and because God cares about what happens to them. Verse 26, Saul also went to his home at Gibeah, and with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. That God is not finished with Israel, even though Israel seems to be finished with God. That God is going to see them through all the way to the finish. Listen to me, listen to me. This is hope for you weary sinners. All of you who are under conviction that your priorities are out of whack and that you're, you're worried about God infringing upon you. All of you who are sitting and saying, God, woe is me. How could I? There is hope for you. And that is this, that God is going to raise up another king who will not stop until he says it is finished. God is not going to quit on you just because you've quit on him. Do you hear me? God's not going to quit on you just because you've quit on him. God is content to see it through all the way to the end. And if you are his child, if you are his person, God is the one that will go and find you at the bottom of the hill where you've barreled down by your own devices and by your own clumsiness and by your own way. And God is the one that will heal your wounds and pick the gravel out of the scratches and pick you up and dust you off again and say, come on, my son, I, grace is sufficient for you. Brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters, this morning, don't go your own way. Repent, repent, and find the gentle welcome of the Lord waiting on you. Let's pray to the Lord together this morning. Thank you for watching or listening to one of our sermons. We would love to have the opportunity to connect with you one-on-one. We are not a perfect church, but we are a joyful church, and we want to help you increase your joy in Christ. We would love for you to come and worship with us one day soon. You'll be able to find information about our worship services, about who we are, what we believe, what we do, what we're hoping to accomplish on our website at ironcity.org. We would invite you to go and to check out all the information there. We look forward to seeing you soon.